Cancer is scary and it's also expensive. In fact, it's the number one cost concern among big employers. But while cancer treatments have improved and death rates have dropped, disparities in outcomes have widened. A key driver is access to comprehensive cancer centers. Access Hope, a spin-off of leading cancer center City of Hope is democratizing cancer care by widening access to first-rate resources. Hi, everyone. I'm David Williams, president of strategy consulting firm Health Business Group and host of the Health Biz Podcast, a weekly show where I interview top healthcare leaders about their lives and careers. My guest today is Mark Stadler, CEO of Access Hope. If you like this show, please leave a review and subscribe. Mark, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. Thanks, David. Nice to be here. Appreciate it. Let's talk a little bit, uh, wind the clock back a little bit, talk about your background, your upbringing. You know, what was your childhood like? Any childhood influences that have stuck with you throughout your career? Oh, my. Uh, my childhood was um, idyllic. I grew up in Redondo Beach, California. I'm the sixth of eight children. I have five older brothers and two younger sisters, and we spent a lot of our time uh, back in those days, California was, uh, you know, much slower, much quieter. Uh, we spent our days on the beach and up in the local mountains and in the deserts. Uh, it was it was really quite an idyllic life. Uh, Redondo Beach is the home of the Beach Boys, so uh, it was it was really something to grow up there. That about spells it out, you know. Now, were your parents looking for a, a daughter at some point? Like, were you a disappointment in that sense, <laughs> or they but they they continued on? I mean, you didn't they didn't give up? That's for sure. Well, they saved the best for last in terms of the boys, and I remind my older brothers of that. I have a very unusual family in that my oldest brother is 23 years older than I am, and my youngest sister is nine years younger than I am, and it's the same parents. Nice. So you can do the math. Um, and uh, they stayed together for a long time. But uh, yes, they were consistently and constantly trying for that girl, and and she came along a year after me. And, That's good. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, they got their wish there. So they were great people. My dad was an entrepreneur and owned his own uh, trucking company and uh, always wanted all the boys to work there. And I was the first one that said, I want to go to college and uh, went off to college and went and did my own thing. My my brothers all went to work for the family business. So that sounds good. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic with a larger family. Sometimes people say, you know, yeah. it's like great for the kids and tough for the parents. And I talked to we we have four and I talk to people sometimes who, you know, they come from a big family and then they have a small one themselves, or sometimes it's the other mm -hmm. way around. I haven't had so many that it's like consistent from one generation to the next. So yeah. I don't know what to say about that. Well, I, I have four children of my own. My mother told me as the fourth one was coming, she said, don't try to compete with me. You know? And I <laughs> yeah. said, mom, that's, that's not what it's all about. But today we have four children and 10 grandchildren. Fantastic. So, uh, yeah. So I love big families. They're a lot of fun. Now, what did you do in terms of education when you went off to, to school? What, you know, what was the path and what was that like? And it sounds like you didn't have that many. You were the trailblazer. I was. I went to uh, Loyola University of Los Angeles. Uh, it says sometimes it says Loyola Marymount because that's the only thing left on the drop downs. But yeah, I was the last graduating class of Loyola University when it was Loyola University and Marymount College. Loved the experience. It was a really great transformational experience for me uh, to be at Loyola. And uh, I went into the group health insurance business right out of school, which was um, a new area, really, and, and certainly self-insuring uh, insurance for large employers. 
So it was just, uh, it was eye-opening and, and life-changing for me to enter this industry. Very interesting. Yeah, I saw the, the stints with uh, Great West and Allstate, yes. and then before moving along to, uh, to Mercer uh, as yeah. well. Yeah, I actually started with Great West right out of college and returned to them 20 years later. And in between, spent some time at Allstate and then about 17 years at Mercer, which was also life-changing and really working with very prominent employers and, and you know working with some of the brightest people in the industry. It was a wonderful experience. Tell me about HealthSmart. What was that about? Uh, HealthSmart was a company that was uh, doing a roll-up of independent third-party administration businesses. Uh, today, HealthSmart is a part of United Healthcare. Actually, they were recently acquired and rolled up into the UMR division of United Healthcare. Um, I've always liked businesses that were uh, either, you know, you had to turn them around, you had to grow them, you had to figure out how to do new things with them, and HealthSmart very definitely fell within that, uh, that bailiwick, if you will, of, of really trying to transform the self-funded business for mid-sized employers. Got it. And how about Bridge Health? Uh, Bridge Health was a company that uh, was involved, it still is, it's now a part of Transparent, but uh, Bridge Health was a company that was involved with guiding people into high quality surgical solutions when they had a choice. So these were all scheduled surgeries. Uh, that was a company that, uh, to a certain extent, needed a little bit of a turnaround and repositioning to get it to its growth stage uh, and, and moving along. And ultimately, as I said, it, it is now a part of Transcarent. So, you know, it's an interesting area because people talk about sometimes, you know, we need consumer driven care and you hear about mm -hmm. that. And then within healthcare, there are a, a limited number, but there are still a number of places where you really can make that choice. You've got the time and you actually have a choice. You've got the insurance that can, that can do that. And that's, you know, that's where it's, where it's helpful. Sometimes people, right. I, I feel get a little ideological about how, you know, well, you know, the, you need to make it more of a consumer business. It just depends. Right. It can't be completely a consumer business. So it sounds like Bridge Health focused on the areas where it could be more so. It did. And, you know, a, a large portion of our population are in rural or secondary markets where you might not have the highest quality of surgical solutions or you have really good, good solutions, but better options are available. And Bridge Health uh, made those things, for example, for people who lived in Alaska, bringing them down into the lower 48. Sometimes it was more, it was also an issue of both cost and quality that you could get the surgery done at a much more appropriate cost. And the employers made it worth the employees while to go down into the lower 48 to have those surgeries done. That's just one example. It's nice when you, when you can have, uh, it's not a trade-off between cost and quality, but you can actually improve both. So it sounds worthwhile. Exactly. Yes, it was. It was. So it sounds like, you know, great uh, background to set you up for Access Hope and uh, all the things that you're doing there. You know, I, we were corresponding before this podcast and you were pointing out that cancer care is number one of on the cost concerns for employers. And, and that's despite the fact that um, it's not as though there's, I mean, we hear about maybe different pockets and new things happening with cancer, but generally speaking, uh, it's not as though that there's been a surge just in the number of, of cancers. Why is this on the top of employers' lists of cost concerns? Well, um, so oncology services today do consume on average about 12% of, of an employer's healthcare budget. We see some customers that are they're in the 20% range, depends on the demographics of their group, could be also the industry in which they're in. 
Uh, there are some industries that have higher incidence of cancer, like the um, uh, airline industry and things like that, where people have greater exposure. So there's a couple of things going on. One, um, there is a higher incidence and it's growing rapidly. Um, and there are emerging subspecialties of cancer that are driving significant um, costs because they are new cancers that are being, you know, that are being uh, discovered today. Um, when you look at cancers, you know, about 1% of our population will get a new cancer diagnosis in a year. About 20% of that population will get a cancer of that 1% will get a diagnosis that's going to drive about 80% of total cancer costs within an employer's sponsored health plan. Now, uh, you, you mentioned, Mark, that... Um that is, you know, is going to vary by employer. You've got your average amount, but then you've got some higher ones. And mm -hmm. it does it have to do with the demographics of the employees, or is it actually something about the work environment as well? I wasn't sure what you were getting at with the airline example. Some of it can be environmental. So, for example, you you just look at at the airline industry. You have people working outdoors on ramps. They have high sun exposure. You have people that are working in aircraft that has higher radio, uh, radioactive exposure and other things. And so you, we do tend to see some higher um, incidence of cancer in those, in those work groups. You look at uh, fire departments and other things like that, that because of exposure to certain elements, you may, you may see higher incidence of cancer, regional differences in the incidence of cancer as well. The, the other thing that's driving this is a lot of a lot of the cost changes in cancer is medical knowledge in the past it used to change about every three to five years you'd get some new advancements in in uh, particularly in the oncology area today there are new advancements you know every uh, 50 to 70 days in certain areas of cancer new treatments are found because of what we've learned through molecular, and DNA testing and, and the, uh, the advancements in science today. Uh, so it's changing the pathway and those pathways all, you know, are all leading to a cure uh, that, uh, that is driving a lot of this as well, so. Got it, and you were, you were sort of anticipating my next question in a way, because you know, one reason the cost could be rising is that there's more you can do with the cancer now. So it's become more treatable. And I would say, you know, in the same way, if, if I'm going to spend more, maybe I'm going to get something more for it, like a, like a cure or long-term remission, right. that would be great. And and maybe this is related, um, but there's these socioeconomic disparities and outcomes seem to be rising. And I'm, I'm just going to guess that that has to do with, if you've got something that's changing rapidly, then those that can keep up with the change are going to do well. And there's going to be a, a separation of those folks from those that uh, you know are going, let's say, to physicians that are still practicing whatever they learned uh, in medical right. school or the last time they had a chance to go to a, um, you know, to a CME. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a, there's a distinction in, in how cancer is, is being cared for across the country. There are 50 or so what are called NCI level cancer centers um, in, in the country. These NCI designated centers and academic centers are where about 90% of the research is happening. Um, around new and emerging cancers, new treatments, how to more give more precise diagnosis of a cancer, which is really important to get that that precise diagnosis early in the cancer journey. Your your opportunity for for survival is much greater. Um, those that's all happening in these NCI centers. 
but, and as I said, about 90% of the research is done there, but only about 20% of the care is actually delivered through these big NCI centers. 80 to 85% of care is delivered in community-based oncology centers where those doctors, as you just said, you know, they, they've, they're, they're very experienced oncologists, but they may see some of these rare cancers or these new and emerging cancers once or twice a year or even in a career they also may not be able to keep up on the changes in treatment protocol of what is appropriate treatment for cancers today because they just can't keep up with, with all of the new and emerging research. And so it's really important to be able to deliver that type of information to them so they can appropriately treat the patient, get them diagnosed correctly, and to avoid what we call misadventures in cancer. Um, and when you do that, you're also pulling waste out of the system. An incorrect diagnosis leads to incorrect treatment, which means you then have to restart. And all of that was for naught. And, and it's very expensive, not to mention the humanistic impact of that on the person who's going through the journey and the disappointment of knowing that they have to change treatment protocol and essentially restart. You know, a lot of times I hear arguments from an academic medical center. I'm, I'm going beyond cancer now and thinking more you know, broadly that, uh, you know, this is where the research is done. We have the most advanced sort of uh, approach. And then yet the community hospitals will say, well, it's more convenient. And also the outcomes might be better because we're not dealing with, you know, having to teach people. We're more focused. And particularly I'm thinking about something like uh, something maybe a little more routine, routine like colonoscopy or mm -hmm. other sort of, you know, procedure people may do as well or better, and it's less expensive. Now, how do you think about, you, you've given me a good reason why, you know, a comprehensive cancer center could be less expensive, which is if you, if you do the right thing first, you know, you don't mm -hmm. have to repeat it and do something else, but are there measurable differences in outcomes compared with, you know, average care at a, at a comprehensive yes. cancer center? How, how, how should we think about that? Yeah. And so recent studies would indicate that the outcomes are 20% better if you're in if, if you're in an NCI or, or one of these large research centers um, having your, your care delivered. And what what we've tried to do at Access Hope and what, what we are doing is delivering that knowledge from that NCI center out to the community-based oncologist not putting the patient in the middle where they have to negotiate with their local doctor, but where we bring that directly to their local doctor as a, in a peer-to-peer -peer consultation with them to accurately diagnose and get the person on the right path the first time. So essentially delivering that level of expertise, the appropriate level of expertise to where it's needed most and when it's needed most. Many cancer patients can't travel and that's one of the challenges that, that they have in getting to one of these NCI centers. It could be geographically too far away or their immune system could be compromised in such a way that they can't travel or the diagnosis is stage three or stage four and time is of the essence to get the diagnosis done quickly. So by exporting it, you're solving for a lot of those problems that, create, that are part of the geographical disparity in cancer care, and you, you try, you narrow that gap. So on a pragmatic basis, is this done, you know, one patient at a time, or is it sort of a systemic approach where you would work, you know, with a given uh, regional center? Like how, how, how does it come, like, let's say if I were in a place that doesn't have, I don't have access, 
but I know I want to be able to get this this level. And I go to my, you know, do I just have to pick the right regional one? Or when I get there, you could work with my physician there, my oncologist. What we do is we work through large employers who are sponsoring health plans, who are looking at the disparity in care and they of hap- that's happening in their population. And they've said, we want to make sure that when it comes to cancer, that our people are getting the very best that's possible. And we identify patients through that employer and reach out to their doctor uh, directly on, on their behalf and on behalf of the employer's plan. And it's a, it's a revolutionary approach. Uh, it's not something that a member that a, when I say member, it's a patient that somebody yeah. who's, who's in, in this health plan has to um, opt in to do. They can if they would like to, but we're proactively reaching out and identifying situations and reaching out on their behalf to their doctor to assist them and, and let the doctor, keeping the doctor in complete control of the case. 88% of the time when we're, when we're communicating with a doctor, they're adopting our recommendations. The, the 12% that might not, it might be because it's too late stage, there was, there was nothing else that could be done, uh, but we know that we're making significant impact. And the, and the response we get from the local oncologist is, thank you, how can I get this for all of my patients? Got it. Because they, they are all, one of the unique things and real uh, wonderful thing about oncologists, they're on a mission for a cure. They want to get that patient through. That's their goal. There's no, there's no profit in the end of a life. And yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're really looking for the value that they can deliver in, in getting that person through their cancer journey successfully. And so are the employers. The employers also know that the right treatment might be more expensive, but it's the right treatment. And if you get it done quickly and you avoid that, you know, that misadventure I was talking about, yeah. it, it actually pays for itself. And so cost is not the, not the driver of this. It's really quality that, that, that employers are looking for, that the employers that are hiring us. The other thing that they're trying to look at and that they that when we reach out to people, we do that without uh, without knowledge of their socioeconomic, their racial position, anything. And and we are helping to deliver an employer's um, uh, what they call their DE&I strategies, their diversity, equity and inclusion strategies to make sure that there is health equity across their plan. And we see time and time again where we're reaching into underserved zip codes around the United States and your zip code does have a strong uh, correlation to your success on a cancer journey. So when we can reach to that doctor in Tupelo, Mississippi, or Hayes, Kansas, that are way far out away from these centers and bring NCI level care to a, to a patient in that community, it's life-changing. It really is life-changing. And it's very motivating what motivates our team. So I've heard about um, some second opinion services that also serve the employer market. A lot mm-hmm. of the diagnoses probably are cancer, but they're not as focused as you are. I heard one element where you're saying maybe oncologists are particularly, you, you don't have an issue of, uh, you know, just stay out of my, stay out of my lane. They're, they're mm-hmm. interested, maybe more interested than uh, let's just say orthopedist or cardiologist. Um, and is that sort of, is that, is that the case? How would you contrast yourself with a, th- there's that element of it, but are you different? Like is, is second opinion, is that the wrong way to think about it? 
Well, second opinion, I, I would certainly encourage anybody to always get a second opinion on any type of medical care, because there there are multiple ways to look at at a diagnosis or or um, you know a treatment plan, and it's your health. But when it comes to cancer, um, what you don't want to have happen is you I call it the monkey in the middle. You don't want to give a second opinion to the patient and leave them alone to go talk to their doctor. And you also don't want to create mistrust with the patient of the person that they're putting their life at, you know, in, in the hands of a local oncologist. And to put a precision review with an NC, with a true NCI specialist, these are the doctors that might actually be working on the clinical trials and looking at the emerging capabilities and treatment protocols for that specific subspecialty of cancer and putting them in touch with that local oncologist, it empowers the oncologist. And the oncologist is not, is not in a position where they're losing their patient, which they don't want to do. And they want to be able to treat that patient and appropriately treat them. And we're, we're giving them everything they need to do. Sometimes a second opinion is a, it's a second opinion and it ends up in a file somewhere that no one really addresses. And we wanted to make sure that what we were doing was really adding value and changing the course of treatment and the outcome for people who are on a cancer journey. I sometimes hear about it related to managed care, or even let's say uh, Medicare Advantage that mm -hmm. you have a certain percentage of your panel if, if you're a physician that you know ha has a, a certain way that you're that you're treating them because of maybe in that case your financial uh, mm -hmm. requirements and then it changes your whole practice do you see an impact on you know you had mentioned that local oncologists may say hey I wish you could have this for all the patients but is there some sort of a broader effect that you have even if, even if you're you're not you know obviously getting the whole panel uh, of the patients, does that oncologist get better? The local oncologist, do they practice differently? I think they do. I think they they also establish relationships with the NCI center to be able to connect with them on future cases and other things like that. I think they um, I think it's very empowering to them. Yes, you know so one of the things that also can happen in some of these other you mentioned Medicare Advantage and other um, uh, situations. Um, some uh, people are enrolled in plans that have very narrow networks. They have they have fewer options. An NCI center, chances are, are not in one of those options. And so they are relying exclusively on the opinions and the treatment protocols that are developed by that, that network to be able to offer an NCI guideline for, for, for folks in those. It can be, again, life-changing. Got it. So sounds like you're making good progress. And I'm curious, you know, where, where do you go from here? Is it just kind of getting the word out to more employers and building what you're doing? What, you know, what's on your roadmap? Yeah. So today we're working with um, more than 35 of the fortune 500 companies in the country have contracted with us. And we're very flattered by that. We're continuing to, uh, to work with other large self-insured employers. We're also, now working through large health plans where they are offering our services to their customers as part of a cancer offering. So uh, that's, a, that's a big movement for us. We're working with union welfare plans where there are uh, labor negotiated benefits. They have a, a real keen interest in, in improving cancer care for their members. And then we're also just now entering the Medicare Advantage market with, uh, with a pilot next year 
uh, to uh, to see what we can do in, in impacting the, the lives for people on Medicare Advantage. The incidence of cancer in a Medicare population because of age is about double what it is for an under 65 population. And our mission is to deliver this life-changing information out to oncologists. And we're also to perpetuate the original mission of City of Hope, who founded us, which is to democratize cancer care. Makes sense. I think that long term, you'd have to be working with the older population, considering that's where most of the cancer actually is. Uh, exactly. Even. Yeah. So last exactly. question. The last question I have for you, Mark, is about uh, sort of turning back to whether there's uh, you know, any good books that you've read lately, anything that you might uh, recommend. Well, I'm, I'm reading two books. One, one I'm reading for the second time. It's called The Empire of the Summer Moon because the movie's coming out. And that's not a commercial for the movie, but it's a fascinating story of the life of, of, a, of a major Indian tribe in Oklahoma. And it's, I think, something we can all learn from. And I'm also reading a really great book. It's called The American Nations, A History of 11 Rival Regional Cultures of North America. Wow. And when you read it, it really helps you understand why the left coast is different than the east coast. And many of that still survives today. There's cultural norms in, in parts of, and I live in, I, I grew up in Redondo Beach. Today, I live in Dallas, Texas, uh, which is, uh, you know, a very interesting cultural shift for me. And uh, it, but it really helps you understand uh, why some regional areas of the country are different. So it's, it's a fascinating book. That sounds really good. Well, Mark yeah. Stadler, uh, CEO of Access Hope, thank you for joining me today on the Health Biz Podcast. Thanks, David. I really appreciate being here. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.